I'm John, and this is D-O-L-W-2, episode 45, The Rite of Sodomy. And I'll be reading from The Rite of Sodomy, Homosexuality in the Roman Catholic Church by Randy Engel, volume 1, pages 92 to 105. And if there's time afterward, a reading from the Catechism of the Catholic Church. Other testimony indicated that the Earl the father of six children by his first wife, played both the active and passive role with his manservants and was obsessed with and dominated by them, a shocking and dangerous reversal of class norms. Clearly, there were a number of overriding issues involving the undermining of an entire social structure and the violation of the honor of the ruling class that went beyond his indictment for sodomy. Unfortunately for the Earl of Castlehaven, his total amorality was not the only factor weighing in against his acquittal. Although he held membership in the Church of England, witnesses charged he was an atheist. His brother was a Catholic, and both had ties to Ireland at a time when the Irish were still battling the English. These were the seeds of treason. Also, as Harrop noted, unlike his father, James I, and his libertine Jacobian court, the current sovereign of the House of Stuart, Charles I, was a man of strict and conventional morals in both his private and public life. The idea that a member of the aristocracy would abet in the rape of his own wife by his own manservants had sent shockwaves through Whitehall. Still, it was possible that Mervyn might have been able to escape with his life had he shown any sign of repentance. He did not. He continued to declare he was innocent of the charges against him, said Harrop. The actual trial lasted only one day. On April 25, 1631, the judge and jury, made up of 27 peers, including friends of the countess, rendered their verdict guilty. Knowing the king was against the Earl of Castlehaven had made that a foregone conclusion. However, it was widely believed that Charles would continue, Charles would commute the death sentence, especially as Lord Audley asked for mercy for his father and the distinguished Touche family lineage went back to antiquity, but the king did not. The Earl was beheaded on Tower Hill, and two of his minions, Broadway and Florence, Fitzpatrick, who had been promised immunity, were hanged at Tyburn three months later. Had the Castle Haven scandal been simply a case of a master buggering his servant, it probably never would have come to trial. However, as Harrop noted, it was the grave social and political implications of the Earl's acts rather than the acts themselves that made his downfall inevitable. An important observation that is applicable to the debate over homosexuality in our own times, the Molly House Trials. Our third and final example of the application of English anti-sodomy laws takes us to the end of the English Renaissance period. Here we return to the writings of Alan Bray. In the spring of 1726, acting under pressure from the Societies for Reformation of Morals, Reformation, Reformation of Manners, a lay committee 
for the monitoring of public morals, the London police conducted a sting operation against the house of Margaret Clapp in Field Lane off Hawthorne and other motley houses located in taverns and private homes north of the Thames. As far as the societies were concerned, the action was long overdue, reported Bray. Earlier police raids against these sodomite haunts conducted in 1699 and 1707 had apparently not been effective in halting the proliferation of the gatherings of all male debauchees that had been a part of the London social scene for more than 100 years. Molly is the familiar pet form or diminutive of the female name Mary. Originally, Molly was slang for a female prostitute, but later the term came to be identified with same-sex devotees who exhibited exaggerated effeminate traits and mannerisms. Although some writers contend that Mollies were drawn from all the social classes, including the aristocracy, if it is more improbable that the lower and middle classes predominated in these establishments. The Molly house was, in fact, a male homosexual brothel. According to Bray, by the early 1700s, it had become a society within a society, complete with its own jargon, designated cruising areas, customs, and rules. Here men gathered to drink, sing, dance, flirt, gossip, arrange assignations, and engage in sex with each other or with other male prostitutes hired by the proprietors. The hallmark of Amali was his extravagance in effeminacy and transvestism, claimed Bray. Here was there was a secret sect there was a secret set of signals by which Mollies could identify one another. One Molly house described by Bray featured a room called the chapel where men played husband and wife as if it were their wedding night. Male and female roles were interchangeable. At this at the Molly house, Renaissance men with same sex desires let down their hair, figuratively and literally. They wore makeup and adorned themselves in female clothing or costumes, all the while assuming female voices and airs and prancing about with a mincing gait and other charactered, characterized mannerisms of the female gender, of the feminine gender. In other words, Mollies were what we call today flaming queens. As Randolph Trumbach noted in his essay, The Birth of the Queen, Sodomy and the Emergence of Gender Equality in Modern Culture, 1660-1750, to, to affect the feminine identity associated with the passive or receptive role, the Mali was required to adapt artificial help in terms of clothing, mannerisms, and feminine names. On the other hand, if the Mali was taking the active role, such adaptations were unnecessary. Whether one chooses to identify the Mollies as homosexual transvestites or cross-dressing homosexuals, one thing is clear. They were ultimately organized for the sole purpose of procuring male same-sex partners. As Bray suggested, no one ever uttered a Molly, no one ever entered a Molly house ignorant of the type of trade it provided or the nature of and penalties attached to the homosexual acts committed therein. One unusual aspect of London's Molly House was that it served as a homosexual enclave for adult sodomites 
who engaged in sex with each other as well as young boys. True, there were some English rakes who equated radical politics with radical sex and who sought out the sexual diversions in an irrelevant and irreverent atmosphere of the Molly House offered along with houses of female prostitution. However, it appears that most of the patrons of the Molly Houses were adult men who were actually drawn to other adult men or boys for sexual gratification. The he-whore had no interest in women, remarked Tumbach. In this sense, then, there were some Mollies in the 18th, in 18th century England whose behaviors and sexual preference were characteristic of the modern effeminate homosexual. The fact that sodomites were having sexual relations both active and passive with other adult males at the Molly houses did produce some interesting legal implications, including the possibility of blackmail and its attendant dangers of public exposure, scandal, and possible suicide, suggested Trumbach. Homosexual acts with young boys whose testimony in court could easily be dismissed were one thing. Homosexual acts with other adult males was quite a different matter. These men were playing a dangerous game, and they knew it. Under English law, it was homosexual acts leading to penetration and ejaculation that led to convictions for sodomy and the gallows. The sensational clap trial led to the conviction and hanging of three men in May 1726. Additional trials followed in July, but these appeared to have attracted less public attention, the novelty of the Mali perhaps having been worn a bit thin. By the mid-1700s, mid most of the Mali houses were discovered and closed down, but the concept of a Mali as an effeminate sodomite and a prototype of a male homosexual continued to linger on in English society for decades, indeed well into modern times. Sodomy charges against three Renaissance popes. Before leaving the Renaissance period, I should like to touch upon the delicate issue of the three Renaissance popes by to whom the label of sodomite has been affixed by various writers and historians, and whose names appear on various queer lists of as homosexuals. They are Pope Paul II, Pope Sixtus IV, and most importantly, Pope Julius III. With regard to the charges against the first two of these popes, Paul II and Sixtus IV, the historical evidence against them is virtually non-existent. Pietro Barbo, the future Pope Paul II, was born in Venice in 1417 to Niccolo Barbo and Polixena Condulmer, the sister of Pope Eugene IV, 1431-1437. After studying for her career in business, the Pope's nephew changed his mind and entered the priesthood, where he quickly advanced from Archdeacon of Bologna to Cardinal Deacon in 1440. Barbo was elected Pope in 1464 largely as a reaction against the policies of his predecessor, Pope Pius II. Known personally for both his generosity to the poor and his love of display and gala festivals, the imposing Paul II did not hesitate to use his office to prosecute heretics in France and Germany and to attempt to restore order in the Papal States.
With regard to matters of faith and morals, the Pope demonstrated a great concern regarding the growing influence of the half-pagan and materialistic side, materialistic side of the humanist movement in various church dicasteries. In 1466, he abolished the College of Abbreviators and was, that was charged with the abridging of papal decrees and edicts before they went to the copyists. He also moved to suppress the Royal Academy on the grounds of gross immorality on the part of some of its members. Naturally, these actions ignited a strong negative reaction from those intellectuals and prominent public figures who stood to lose their profitable stipends and the many privileges associated with the office. Among those so affected was the well-known humanist writer and archivist Bartolomeo Sacchi, known as Platina, who enjoyed membership in both the College of Abbreviators and the Roman Academy. Bolletina got his revenge against Paul II five years after the Pope's death in a calumnious biography in which he charges his archenemy with being a sodomite and a lover of young boys. In fact, Paul II had a reputation for sternness in his private conduct, and we know he used his office to attack immorality even within the Curia itself. Given Platina's well-known grievances against the Pope, and since there appears to be no collaborative testimony to support the charges of gross immorality, this writer is inclined to side in favor of Pope Paul II and against Platina. The second Pope to be charged with sodomy was Pope Sixtus IV, a radically different personality than his predecessor Paul II, to whom he owed his ecclesiastical good fortune. Francesco della, Francesco della Rovere, the future Pope Sixtus IV, was born in humble surroundings near Abasola on July 21, 1414. After entering the Franciscan order, he gained eminence as an outstanding student of philosophy and theology at the University of Paris, at the University of Pavia, and later rose to the office of procurator. In 1467, Pope Paul II created him Cardinal of S. Pietro in Bencoli. Four years later, with the death of Paul II, Della Rovere himself ascended the chair of Peter. Unfortunately for the church and for the new pope, Sixtus IV's energies were immediately consumed in a series of pressing political struggles both within and without the papal states. Also, his penchant for nepotism entangled the pontiff in some unsavory Italian political intrigues, including the disastrous Pazzi conspiracy headed by the Pope's nephew, Cardinal Raphael Sanson Riario, that was designed to bring about the overthrow of his of the Medici and bring Florence under the rule of the House of Riari. Although Sixtus IV is remembered as in his history as a political rather than religious leader, his pontificate was not altogether marked by secular interests. He vigorously attacked the heretical doctrine of the Valdenses and was a well-known patron of arts and letters. Unlike Pope Paul the Sixth, unlike Pope Paul the Second, his attitude 
toward the Renaissance was decidedly positive, and he was credited with being the second founder of the Vatican Library. Not without a touch of irony, Sixtus IV turned over the management of the library to none other than Platina, who held the office until his death in 1481. As to his private life <coughs> and personal morals, Sixtus IV was held to be blameless. <coughs> so where did the charges of sodomy against him originate? With a political enemy and a lifelong conspirator against the papal government by the name of Stefano's, Stefano Impasura. Born at Rome circa 1435, Infasor was a lawyer by profession and served for many years as a secretary to the Roman Senate. He was notorious for his anti-papal sentiments and political intrigues, including a conspiracy against Pope Nicholas V. Indeed, his life's work was dedicated to the destruction of the papal states and the transformation of Rome into a republic. In 1494, Impasura wrote a scurrilous attack on the papacy in the form of a chronicle titled Diarium Orbis Romae, Diario della Cita di Roma, 1294-1494. The work, later widely used by Protestants against the church, contained all manner of gossip and rumors of Roman society, including a host of calumnies against the morals of the papal court, which during the Renaissance period was largely, during the Renaissance period was certainly not always of the highest caliber, but Impasura did not stop there. Where calumnies against certain enemies were wanting, he created them, as were the charges of incestuous pederasty and sodomy made against Pope Sixtus IV. As evidence in support of these charges, Impasura cited the Pope's appointment of his two favorite nephews, Pietro Riario, a Franciscan, and Giuliano della Roveri, the future Pope Julius II, to the, to the Cardinalate. He then went on to claim that the young men became his, became their uncle's lovers. Impasura's charges of nepotism against Sixtus IV were true. His nephews Pietro and Giuliano received their red hats on December 16, 1471. Raphael Sanson Viario was not quite 17 years old, received his red hat on December 10, 1477, along with two other relatives, Cristoforo Dello Roberti and Girolamo Basso Della Roberti. Their main qualification for the office was that they were family. In these turbulent times, the Pope, the Pope needed to surround himself with men he could trust, and this would generally trend and this generally translated itself into papal appointments of family members. Of Cardinal Pietro Riario, 1445-1474, we know little except for the fact that he lived the life of a Renaissance prince and became a generous patron of the arts and scholarship. He is remembered for the building of the Cancellaria Palace, allegedly financed from the winnings of the of winnings of one night of dice play with the nephew of Pope Innocent VIII. In his personal conduct, the 
unanimous verdict of history was that he lived an immoral life, but no rumors of homosexuality were attached to his love affairs. Cardinal Giuliano della Roberta proved more worthy of his office. A soldier at heart, he undertook many diplomatic and solitary, many diplomatic and military tasks for Pope Innocent VIII, 1484 to 1492, over whom he held considerable influence. Under the Borgia Pope Alexander VI, 1492 to 1503, he did not fare as well, but nevertheless his ecclesiastical star continued to rise. With the sudden death of Pope Pius III on October 18, 1503, after only 26 days in office, Giuliano's moment had arrived. Within hours of the October 31, 1503 papal conclave, he was elected pope and took the name Julius II. Under his 10-year reign, the papal states were made secure from internal struggles and foreign interventions, and Italy delivered from its subjection to France. Interestingly, unlike his uncle, Pope Sixtus IV, he was free from nepotism. He heard Mass almost daily, often celebrating it himself. In 1512, he convoked the Fifth Lateran Council with the intention of instituting a number of important church reforms, especially within the Roman Curia and the monastic orders. Let us return now to Empressura's charges that both Pietro and Giuliano served as catamites to their Pope uncle, Pope Sixtus IV. First, there is the implausibility that given the close alliance that extended between family members, especially those of great power and influence, an uncle, much less a pope uncle, would sexually misuse his own natural nephews. Secondly, if heredity plays any role whatsoever in one's sexual life, the Rovere lineage was widely, wildly heterosexual and prolific, its eminent ecclesiastics not excluded. For example, before he became pope, Giuliano fathered three daughters, one of whom he gave in marriage to Giovanni Giordano Orsini, famous for his warlike manliness and temperamentally characterized as the Postafici Terrible. It borders upon the incredible to suggest he would submit his body for penetration by any man, including his uncle, the Pope, no less. Later, Reputable historians of the Renaissance popes have largely dismissed the chronicles of Empressara as being grossly unreliable and purposefully maligning, so much so that when Oresti Tomasini edited the Diarium in 1890, all references to Empressara's accusation of pedestry and sodomy against Pope Sixtus IV and his nephews were eliminated on the grounds that they lacked any foundation whatsoever in fact. The distinguished Del Monte family. Unlike the accusations of sodomy made against Pope Paul II and Pope Sixtus IV, the charges of unnatural affection between Cardinal Giovanni Marina Maria Chiocci Del Monte, who became Chiocci Del Monte, who became Pope Julius III, and the seventeen year old Cardinal Innocenzo, 
appeared during their lifetime. Although once again the historical evidence appears to disprove that the love between the Del Monte Pope and his adopted nephew was a homosexual one, homoerotic one, nevertheless the story of their extraordinary relationship and its tragic consequences is worth telling, if only to reaffirm the character and integrity of one of history's most maligned popes. In Michael L. Durer's historic masterpiece, The Life of Cardinal Innocenzo Del Monte, A Scandal in Scarlet, we can trace the ecclesiastical fortunes, both good and bad, of the Del Monte family of Tuscany for three generations, beginning with the elevation of the most worthy Antonio Maria Teoti Del Monte to the office of Cardinal on March 10, 1511. Antonio, insisted, Antonio assisted Pope Julius II at the Fifth Lateran Council and after the death of the old Delibrovere Pope became a competent to the youthful Cardinal Giovanni del Medici who took the name of Pope Leo X, 1513-1521. Antonio was credited with helping to uncover the plot to murder the Pope and with bringing the world with bringing the would-be assassins to justice. In gratitude for his personal service and in recognition of his service to the church, in 1519, Leo X awarded Antonio the See of Albano. So esteemed was he among his fellows at the, of the Sacred College that at both the 1522 papal enclave, following the death of Pope Leo X, and again at the 1523 conclave, following the death of Pope Adrian VI, Antonio's name was found among the candidates for the papal office. When the honor fell to Cardinal Giulio de' Medici, who reigned for the next 11 years as Pope Clement VII, Antonio served him also, both at home and abroad, as he had faithfully served the Pope's three predecessors. When his brother died, Antonio brought his sister-in-law, Margarita, and her six children to Rome to reside with him reported Durer. He raised them as if they were his own, taking special care for their spiritual, educational, and material needs. Later, when his brother Vincenzo died, Antonio likewise aided his widow Chrysophora and their children. Of these, the eldest son Giovanni became the cardinal uncle's favorite and the heir apparent to the most powerful man in the church after the pope. Pope Julius III, a great canonist and defender of the faith. Giovanni Maria Gia Maria Chiotti del Monte, the future Pope Julius III, was born in Rome on September 10, 1487. Following in, his brother, following in his father's footsteps, he studied law at Perugia and Siena, and under the tutorage of his famous uncle, he attended the finest oratory and received his theological training under the great Dominican teacher Ambrosius Catharinus. Thanks to Antonio's influence, Giovanni entered papal service as chamberlain to Pope Julius II. In 1512, at the age of 25, he succeeded his uncle as Archbishop of Sepanto. The young prelate later was won the favor of both Medici popes. Leo X gave him the Diocese of Pavia, and continued to retain him for administrative purposes at Sepanto. 
Pope Clement VII made him vice-legate of Perugia and twice prefect of Rome. After the death of his cardinal uncle on September 20, 1533, Giovanni Maria's star continued to rise on the talented prelate's own merit. In 1534, he was appointed legate to Bologna, the Romagna of and Piacenza. On October 5, 1543, Giovanni Maria received the red hat from the hands of Pope Paul III, 1534 to 1549, who later entrusted the new cardinal with the preparatory work necessary for the convocation of the Council of Trent that was called to meet the crisis of the Protestant Reformation. On February 6, 1545, he was appointed the first president of the council, and 10 months later, on December 13, 1545, he convened the first session of the historic council that would cover a span of 14 years and would bring about major reforms in the life of the church. As recorded by Durer in 1547, Pope Paul III relieved Giovanni Maria of his duties with regard to the management of the council due to the cardinal's poor health and made him legate to Bologna, where Del Monte had served 13 years earlier. Dora recalled that the inhabitants filled the streets with joyous adulation at his, the appointment, a reaffirmation of the high esteem in which he was held by the people. Four years later, following the death of Paul III, Cardinal Giovanni Maria Chiochi Del Monte found himself occupying the chair of Peter as Pope Julius III. What type of man was the new pope? The renowned German church historian Father Hubert Schedden, 1900-1980, who wrote the definitive history of the Council of Trent, stated that Del Monte was one of the most skillful canonists of his time with a great knowledge of the law and a natural affinity for diplomacy. In the words of Durer, he possessed that unerring sense of objectivity, that instinctive appreciation of what is politically correct and attainable, which are characteristics of the Italian man of the people to this day. The members of the Curia found him a diligent and faithful and honest servant of the church. As Pope Julius III, he remained a strict defender of the faith and institution of the church and a papal leader in the church's counter-reformation. Pastorally speaking, the pope appeared to have gained the love and respect of the populace in the many dioceses where he served, especially in Bologna. Perhaps part of his charm was that he never became fully cosmopolitan, retaining many of the characteristics of the rural peasants of the Tuscany region. He was, a, he was a distinguished prince of the church, but his personal demeanor was often somewhat coarse and unrefined, confided Durer. He had an unusual racy and inappropriate sense of humor and an unusually melancholy temperament, punctuated by decidedly short fuse and uh, unmovable stubbornness, Dora added. Also, good wine was never far away, helping to kill the pain of chronic gout and infections of the eyes and teeth and neurological facial problems that plagued his later years. What his short reign as Pope Julius III might have been like 
had the elder Del Monte never laid eyes on the young Innocenzo, we do not know, but there is no doubt that it would have been much more favorable than history now records. Cardinal Innocenzo, the last of the Renaissance princes. Innocenzo, the future Cardinal Prince, was about 15 years old when he first met the aging prelate, who, which, who was then serving as the governor of Piacenza. Born in 1532 in the northern fortress town of Borgo San Donino, halfway between Piacenza and Parma, Innocenzo, not his baptismal name, was the illegitimate son of a common soldier and beggar woman who left home at the age of 14 to seek his fortune and never looked back. All his life, Dora tells us, Innocenzo would be driven by an indomitable instinct to survive, and survive he did, no matter what the cost to those who cared for him, including his greatest benefactor, Cardinal Giovanni Maria. The details of their first meeting are sketchy. According to Durer, many young men of the neighboring region came to the Cardinal's establishment seeking work. The story is that Innocenzo attracted the prelate's particular attention when the young boy skillfully wrestled himself free from the grasp of the Cardinal's pet ape. Impressed by the youth's courage and spunk, the Cardinal brought him into his household, where Innocenzo served initially as a valero, a combination of footman and attendant to the sickly prelate. His lack of formal education and overall coarse behavior, which in other households might have militated against him, found favor with the old Del Monte, who came to treat the youth with the same affection he showed for his own relative's grandsons. Soon the witty and charming Innocenzo had attached himself to the entire family, Dora said. Had the Cardinal let the matter rest here, we probably never would have heard any more about the ill-fated Innocenzo. <sighs> but once the stubborn old man determined that his favorite should be given an opportunity to prove himself worthy and advance up the social and ecclesiastical ladder, the youth's fortunes and misfortunes were forever, would forever be tied to the Del Monte name. When, at Giovanni Maria's request, the colonel's brother, Boldovino, formally adopted the boy, the relationship between the two men was formally sealed. <sighs> After seeing to the youth's general education, the colonel obtained for him a minor position as a provost in the Tuscany Diocese of Arezzo, even though he was, even though it was obvious from the youth's behavior and temperament that he was totally unsuited for a career in the service of the church, and here in minor obscurity he might have remained had not the unexpected happened. Pope Paul III died suddenly, and the elderly Del Monte ascended the papal throne as Pope Julius III. Once again, nepotism swept through the Curia, but as we have already seen, this was nothing new in the history of the Church. During these dangerous times for the papacy, as Dora humorously noted, almost every cardinalate, cardinalicito, almost every cardinalicito consistory was like a little family reunion. In a more serious vein, Dora noted that while the practice of nepotism is largely disparaged today, during the Renaissance when 
the papal states and the papacy itself was under constant attack, having one's relatives in key church positions served to stabilize church administration and ensure ensured loyalty to the reigning pontiff. Secondly, it is an incontrovertible fact of history that with the exception of his adopted nephew Innocenzo, the confidence that Pope Julius III placed in his cardinal nephews reaped great rewards for the church during the mid-16th and early 17th centuries. Among the most praiseworthy of Del Monte's legitimate cardinal nephews listed by Durer are the great reformer Cardinal Fulvio della Cogna, the saintly Cardinal Cristoforo Guidalote Chioti del Monte, a doctor of both civil and canon law, Cardinal Girolamo Simoncelli Bodovino's grandson, known for his great zeal and love for the church and the most remarkable law, Giovanni Maria, great nephew, Saint Roberto de Nobili, who was mainly carnal at age 12, lived an exemplary religious life and died in 1559 with the odor of sanctity at the age of 17, having exhausted his short life in God's service. Unfortunately, Innocenzo was not cut from the same cloth as these men. Cardinal, Renidal, Cardinal Reginald Pole once called him an impious rogue, Durer said. When the College of Cardinals heard that the Pope intended to raise his adopted nephew, a bastardo, to boot, there was a sense of outrage, especially among the leaders of the Counter-Reformation and the Curia, who believed with good reason that the appointment would bring dishonor upon the Church. Ignoring these protests, Pope Julius III quickly issued a bull legitimizing Innocenzo that he had done the same for his brother Bolivino's illegitimate son, Fabiano, and in a secret consistory on July 2, 1550, gave him the red hat. He then made Innocenzo papal legate in Bologna. Soon, said Durer, the young prelate was living the life of any was living life any Medici prince would envy. With regard to his new ecclesiastical appointment, Innocenzo was never more than a figurehead. When the elderly Del Monte realized he had made a grievous error in selecting Innocenzo for the dual political and diplomatic role for which the young man had absolutely no qualifications, he gave his rather cardinal nephew's tasks over to the capable Cardinal Girolamo Dandini, Dora recorded. This left Innocenzo free to indulge his baser passions, which included a string of scandalous love affairs, including one with his future sister-in-law, the poetess Donna Ercilia Cortese. Whether or not such behavior ever motivated Julius III to consider reducing Innocenzo to a lay state remains in the realm of conjecture. The Pope was made aware of the Cortese affair after which affair which threatened to become a public scandal of the first order, but he did nothing to defend the reputation of the Del Monte family. By this time, Pope Julius III was in failing health due to the advancement of gout 
than made eating too painful. He died literally of starvation on March 23, 1555, and was buried in St. Peter's Crypt, his plain tomb bearing the name Papa Julius III. <coughs> Cardinal Innocenzo was now on his own. He was just 23 years old. With the death of his great benefactor, the only person that he probably ever truly loved and who loved him back, the young Cardinal Innocenzo, knew his fortunes had taken a turn for the worse. Would he, could he reform his life and become worthy of the Del Monte name? Tragically, the answer was no. According to Durer, four of the next five popes tried to bring about his conversion, but the task proved hopeless. Innocenzo proved to be immune to the tidal wave of reform within the church. Uh, by the time of his death, at the age of 46 on All Souls Day, November 2nd, 1577, Colonel Innocenzo had sustained years of imprisonment for staining the purple with the murder of at least two innocent men and other criminal offenses, including rapine, offenses for which he remained unrepentant. He was buried within hours of his death, unattended and without ceremony, in the Mont Del Monte Chapel in the Church of San Pietro in Montorio in Tuscany. The last true Renaissance print, last true Renaissance Cardinal Prince, Doro concluded. As to the lingering question as to whether or not there was any homosexual attachment between the elderly Del Monte and, the, and his young protege, or if the relationship was simply one of the love of an indulgent old man for a disadvantaged youth born into grinding poverty, let us examine the evidence that Durer puts before us. But before doing so, it should be noted that prior to the publication of the Durer book, the popular view as expressed as expressed in both in the popular media and homosexual circles, was that the rumors of <coughs> was that the rumors of sodomy against Pope Julius III were true. In the anti-Catholic work Unzipped, the Pope's Late Bear The Pope's Bear All by Arthur Frederick Ide, published by American Atheist Press in nineteen eighty seven, the author stated that Julius III and had Innocenzo for a lover. In Pedophiles and Priests, Anatomy of a Contemporary Crisis, 1966, writer Philip Jenkins, a former Catholic, labeled Pope Julius III as an active homosexual who raised his young lover to the rank of cardinal. The updated version of the initial liaison between Cardinal Del Monte and young Innocenzo, as seen through the lavender lens of various queer websites is that Cardinal Giovanni discovered Innocenzo while roaming the streets of Parma, not Piacenza, in search of a young male prostitute on whom he could slake his homosexual passions. Unfortunately for posterity, <clears throat> in Scandal or in Scarlet, Dora devoted an entire chapter titled Zeus and Ganymede that is meant to answer these grievous charges. With the skill of an experienced surgeon, the young George Washington University scholar excised facts from fiction and made a final determination that these accusations of moral turpitude against Pope Julius the 13th 
Pope Julius III and Cardinal Innocendo was were without foundation, were without factual foundation. According to Durer, the myth of Pope Julius III's homosexual relationship with Innocenzo can be traced back to two sources. The first is a letter written in 1551 by Matteo Dandolo, the Venetian ambassador to Rome during the early years of Julius III's pontificate to the Holy Roman Emperor Charles V in a familiar caddy style Donaldo retold, Dandolo retold the story of the young Innocenzo's tryst with the Cardinal's pet ape and how the Cardinal came to like the boy as much as he liked the ape. He then added that the that Del Monte provided the youth with food and clothing, and he soon allowed the boy into his bedroom and into his own bed, as if he were a son or a nephew. Was Dandolo insinuating that theirs was a homosexual relationship? It does not appear so. Seen within its proper context, the meaning of this reference is a is rather forthright. The diplomat is voicing the opinion that the cardinal treated Innocenzo just like he would a son or grandson or nephew, a relationship that would obviously not have included buggery. According to Durer, Innocenzo most likely served as the cardinal's valet de chambre, that is, he attended to the elderly and sickly old Del Monte's needs during the night, a not uncommon practice that continues in the church today among very elderly and sickly prelates, not excluding the Pope himself. The fact that, the Innocenzo, that he, Innocenzo, shared the old man's bed is simply an acknowledgment of practical sleeping arrangements that were customary during the Renaissance period. Interestingly, Dandolo noted that the affection shown by the prelate for Innocenzo was so remarkable that it gave rise to a number, gave rise to a rumor that the youth was actually his own son, a backhanded way of affirming that the old cardinal possessed normal sexual inclinations. Certainly, as was as has Dora pointed out, <clears throat> all of Giovanni Maria's sisters and brother were extremely pro-life, prolific, allowing as many children as God would provide. There is no reason to assume that the prelate, that had the prelate chosen to eschew the religious life and married, he would have likewise fathered a large and extensive family. The second source cited by Durer comes from a, the poisoned pen of the 16th century chronicler, lawyer, and diplomat, Johann Philipson, 1506 to 1556, better known as Johann Sleiden, as a Protestant partisan in service to the German princes united against Charles V and the Catholic Church. The anti-papal bias of Sleiden has, was readily acknowledged. Trent historian Jadon described Sleiden as a one-sided man who laid the blame for all the evils of the pap of the schism upon the alleged ill will of the Roman Curia in commentaries on religion and the state in the reign of Emperor Charles V, published in 1555, the year of Pope Julius III's death. 
Sladen, who probably had knowledge of a of or access to a copy of the Donolo letter, accused Cardinal Del Monte, that is Pope Julius the Third, of keeping Innocenzo as a lover, as Jupiter kept Jupiter kept Ganymedes. The work became one of the most widely read narratives of the Reformation period, up until Dora's recent research initiative on the on the life of the Del Monte family. Slyden's accusations have gone largely unchallenged. Among the arguments presented by Durer that tend to refute the accusation that Cardinal Giovanni Maria Del Monte was a practicing pederast and homosexual is the simple fact that the College of Cardinals, dominated by leaders of the Counter-Reformation movement in the Church, nominated and elected him Pope. If the Cardinal, who according to the modern-day homosexual gossip, Mill was as indiscreet and foolish as to openly solicit a youthful male prostitute in the streets of Bologna or Parma or Piacenza while suffering from a crippling attack of gout and poor eyesight, no less. It is highly unlikely that such behavior would have escaped the attention of the College of Cardinals. With a host of Slidens waiting in the wings to attack the church at every turn, it's Strange reason to believe that the Curia, for one of the greatest church councils ever assembled, the Council of Trent, would consider much less elect a pope with a reputation for pederasty. We also know that Cardinal Del Monte was greatly beloved by the common people. Spontaneous crowds gathered and cheered him on wherever he went, especially in the North in the North Country. Would such treatment be lavished on a prelate, rumored? to be an inveterate bugger. Again, the answer must be in the negative. <clears throat> As for the sexual appetites of the young Cardinal Innocenzo that were demonstrably, demonstrably heterosexual, as evidenced by the Cortese affair and the alleged rape charges against the two women in Siena. <clears throat> of course, this does not absolutely rule out the possibility that he engaged in a sexual liaison with the old, sickly, and uncomely Del Monte in other order to escape his abject life of poverty. But such a relationship would have been difficult for the youth to keep secret <coughs> for so many years. <coughs> As also, the case of Innocenzo remains the only charge of homosexual activity leveled against Giovanni Maria. In the end, after carefully weighing all the historical and biographical data on both Pope Julius III and Cardinal Innocenzo, I believe that Durer was correct in his conclusion that the charges of homosexuality leveled against the two men were are without foundation. In the words of Signora Ava Leopoldo, who provided much of the factual who provided much of the documentation used by Durer in this chap in his chapter on the allegations against Pope Julius III, there is no valid reason to believe that there existed any manner of sexual relationship between the Pope and the boy. I see only affection from one human being to another, from a grandfather to his grandson. I see a special admiration for a poor beggar who was able to stand up and survive. Not until the 20th century would the issue of a homosexual pope be raised again. And now a short reading from the Catechism of the Catholic Church. 
3, man and female, he created them. Equality and difference willed by God. 369, man and woman have been created, which is to say willed by God on the one hand in perfect equality as human persons, on the other in their respective beings as man and woman. Being man and or being woman is a reality which is good and willed by God. Man and woman possess an unalienable, an inalienable dignity which comes to them immediately from God, their Creator. Man and woman are both with one and the same dignity in the image of God. In their being man and being woman, they reflect the Creator's wisdom and goodness. Three seventy. In no way is God. In man's image, he is neither man nor woman. God is pure spirit, in which there is no place for the difference between the sexes. But the respective perfections of man and woman reflect something of the infinite perfection of God, those of a mother and those of a father and husband, each for the other a unity in two. 371. God created man and woman together and willed each for the other. The Word of God gives us to understand that this through various features of the sacred text. It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. None of the animals can be man's partner. The woman God fashions from the man's rib and brings to him elicits on the man's part a cry of wonder and exhalation of love and communion. This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. Man discovers woman as another eye, sharing the same humanity. 372. Man and woman were made for each other. Not that God left them half made or an incomplete. He created them to be a communion of persons in which each can be helpmate to the other, for they are equal as persons, bone of my bones, and complementary as masculine and feminine. In marriage, God unites them in such a way that by forming one flesh, they can transmit human life, be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth. By transmitting human life to their descendants, man and woman, as spouses and parents, cooperate in a unique way in the Creator's work. 373. In God's plan, man and woman have the vocation of subduing the earth as stewards of God. This sovereignty is not to be an arbitrary and destructive dominion. God calls man and woman made in the image of the Creator who loves everything that exists to share in His providence toward other creatures. Hence, their responsibility for the world God has entrusted to them. And this is all my reading from the Rite of Sodomy and the Catechism of the, the Catholic Church for today. And so I'll conclude my podcast here. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. May God bless this podcast, and may the Holy Spirit use it to touch people's hearts. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.